everybody. America's most flexible church rolls on. Indeed. Indeed. I do not. This is our, if you're counting, this is, first of all, it's a one-year anniversary of, of our first Sunday at the Art Center. And this is our 10th move in that year. Yeah, don't woo for that, but it's been 10 years, or 10 moves in a year. Feels like 10 years, that's right. Uh, and so uh, I cannot tell you uh, how much I appreciate just the way that you have uh, held together through this, uh, how we've unified. I want to say thanks to everybody who came out for draft day. We had more than 100 of you actually come out to it, not just sign up, but actually show up to it, uh, and sign up and enlist in the service today. Uh, just just uh, watching the body do its thing here this morning has been absolutely amazing and breathtaking. So I want to say thank you for that. Also want to say you are going to, by nature of where we're located here in this particular place, there's going to be some interesting sound effects from time to time, lighting adjustments. So in, in fact, I will, uh, Scott Tyner and, and uh, the Pierce clan, my guess is by the time this service is over, uh, you, you will feel the presence of God on you. Uh, it's, heading, it's heading that way toward you. Uh, so if you need to put your shades on, that's good. We've had that over, over the years at NBC. She's ready. She put them on already. Uh, we used to have the, the earliest days of NBC. We used to have uh, a blinding light uh, behind the stained glass that was in there, and it would blind everybody. And so I'm very used to preaching with everybody wearing shades in the auditorium. We did a series called Church in the Wild when we were, were uh, remodeling the sanctuary there, and we, uh, it was all the tabernacling kind of phase of the people of God. And, and so I, just, I, I told the nine o'clockers, I said, hey, look, pretend we're in a park, and you're out there, and, and if you hear a baby cry, it's just, uh, it's like a bird chirping. It's, if a hot rod goes by, if a motorcycle goes by with a big engine or whatever, that's like a you know, a guffawing of a, of, a, of, a, of a bird or something like that that makes you feel like it. Just remember you're in the wild. Our time is short. Uh, I don't know the precise date, but we should be in the Ritz by the end of May, we hope. Um, and we're, uh, in the meantime, we're going to be here. It's been a good vibe this morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, I, the series we're in is called How to Change the World, which is a very grandiose title, but it's also one that I believe to be true about the book of Acts. Acts is... Makes a, makes a daring claim, which is that only the power of God can change the world. Amen. That, that you, can, you can try a bunch of other things. You can try social engineering. You can try uh, willpower. You can try a whole bunch of other things. And not, not that those things are bad, but that if it's missing the power of God, then you're just not going to change much. The world is broken. We're broken. And so like the Rubik's Cube you see in the graphic there, we tend to twist it this way and that not understanding that with every turn we make it more messed up than we did when we got our hands on it. And it takes somebody who actually knows how it's supposed to be to, 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 to put it in the right position where it all fits and that a thing of beauty is created. Jesus spoke of a movement so strong that the gates of hell couldn't prevail against it. And we are part of that as Christians. We're part of the church. That is the movement that Jesus spoke of. And he said that on, he was talking to Peter, you're the rock and on, my, on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is something that I'm excited to be a part of and I hope you are too. And so we're reading the stories of what it was like to be an early Christian in a society that was hostile uh, to, to the faith. So I will say this, the, the idea that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church is uh, right now it's, they're standing the test. Uh, they've handled the challenges they have 
um, stood up to the authorities when they tried to persecute them. Uh, they have gotten up and been bold when they needed to be bold. But what we're going to learn today is that that was kind of like the easy part. Things can get a lot more difficult for them. And so we're going to be uh, at the end of chapter 4 of Acts and all the way through chapter 5 today. At the end of Acts 4, the state of the church is very strong. You get the little formula uh, that basically says, and everything was going so well. Everybody's sharing with each other. Uh, there's goodwill there. Um, they're devoted to the teaching of the apostles. They're praying fervently. They're testifying to Jesus with great boldness. God is blessing them in amazing ways. And the end of Acts 4, watch this. All the believers were united. This is Acts 4, 32 to 37. Were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. It's wonderful. Generosity everywhere. Just oozing from their pores. Well, we learn soon that for every Barnabas, there are others, like a man by the name of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. So I'm going to tell you two stories today. Uh, one is kind of terrifying, and the other one is, is terrifying. And they're both terrifying, one in a good way and one in a, in a bad way. And so one is a word of caution to say, don't do this. And the other one is to say, be like this instead. And so today's sermon is called Never Almost. And uh, I hope that we will welcome the Word of God in our hearts this morning. So when chapter 5 opens, so I just finished with Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He brings, sells his field, brings all the money to the apostles. Then it opens with this word. But, or however, there was a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and they sold some property. Now they're a contrast to Barnabas. And they get together, and they say, ah, I picture them around their house going to, well, hon, what do you think we ought to do? What should we give to the church? I don't know. Given the whole thing, it seems a bit dramatic. I mean, how are we supposed to take our, you know, vacation to Antioch if we do that or whatever? And they uh, decide, they conspire amongst themselves that they're going to hang on to a part of it, but they're going to say that this is all of it. Maybe because they want to imitate Barnabas and that the way the flavor of the early church is, you give it all. Like, so you don't sit there and kind of like tithe off the sale of your land. You just give the land, the, the full proceeds of the land. So instead of doing that, though, they, they decide that they're going to say, we're going to tell them this is the full, but it's not. All right. We good? We all got that? All right. So Ananias goes to Peter and he says, hey, we just sold our field. Here's the proceeds. Now, he and Sapphira know that's not all of it. And then Peter asks him, is this all of it? And he says, sure. I mean, I picture it going like this. Is this all of it? Well, of course. Really? Yeah. You want to frisk me? It's not on me. You can ask my wife. Right? And he threads the needle by just doing things the way that we often do. Pretending that he's doing something super generous. Pretending that he's giving it all. Peter, though, knows the lie. And when he says those words, 
Peter goes, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? Now, this is not things that you don't, that's not a compliment, right? Uh, you know, why is Satan filling your heart? It's pretty dramatic. He says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to the Holy Spirit, and he kept some of the money for yourself. The property, this is important if you're going to interpret the passage properly, okay? The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. The money was yours to give away. But you aren't lying to us, you're lying to God. And as soon as Ananias hears those words, he falls to the ground and dies. And then it says, and everyone was terrified. I bet they were. And the word spreads, except, apparently, to his wife Sapphira. Now you should know, there seems to be, I love, I, one of my guilty pleasures, I, don't, I'm not, I am kind of proud of it, actually. I, I like mob movies, mafia movies. Anything that involves a, a gangster movie, I'm in. There is always a crew that's the cleanup crew when someone dies. There's one of those here in Acts 5. There are a couple of young guys off, and they take Ananias' body, they wrap him in a sheet, just like they do in like Goodfellas or something, and then they move him and they bury him. Okay? So everybody is terrified. Everybody knows what happened, except apparently Ananias' wife, Sapphira. Three hours later... It said, this is Acts 5, 7 to 11. I've got it here for you on the screen. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what happened. All right. That's story one. Now, one way to interpret this story is wrongly to say the message is give or die. Okay? <laughs> I've thought about preaching that from time to time, but it's not what the text means, okay? Uh, it's not give or die. The clear issue here is that of telling the truth and having integrity. It's, he, he makes it very clear. He says, look, you could have decided if you wanted to give it or not. That's okay. If you didn't want to sell the land, don't sell the land. But don't lie. Now, Preachers run away scared from this passage. Charles Spurgeon preached thousands and thousands of sermons. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. Almost all of them are written and manuscripted and logged and read by every preacher uh, that I'm aware of. If you go to any kind of preacher training, you're going to read some Spurgeon, okay? I will give you one guess as to how many sermons on Ananias and Sapphira Spurgeon preached out of his thousands. <laughs> Not one. Not one sermon. Because it's awkward, right? I mean, what, you lie and drop dead? It seems a bit much, a bit drastic. You know, what about the ethics of that? You know? Well, the way I prefer to read the Scriptures is to simply go, okay, if I have a problem with that, I'm going to assume that God is right and I'm wrong. I'm going to submit my own will here uh, to, to His and assume that His, his uh, moral prism is, is more finely tuned than my own. So if I do, the way I read this is, okay, why is this such a big issue? 
And I think it lies in the issue of lying to the Holy Spirit. How could you conspire? In fact, the way Peter words it, how could you even think of conspiring to lie to the Holy Spirit? Like you, this is like, you know, this isn't second degree lying. This is first degree. This is you premeditated it, you planned it out, and you lied to us, and thus to the Holy Spirit. And I think, to illustrate what I think the issue is here, I'm going uh, the route of fruit. So I'm gonna, I've got three different kinds of, well, two fruits and one something. I don't even know what it is. Um, we're going to start with the banana. Bananas are, are interesting. So if you go to the store and you're going through trying to pick out a good banana, this is actually a pretty good one. I like this. Um, little green on it, right? It's what you want. You know... You don't see a lot of that black leprosy kind of stuff on the outside, um, that, you know, coronavirus-looking <laughs> stuff on the outside. You're kind of like, okay. But even if it looks kind of bad on the outside, you can still have a pretty good banana on the inside. It's got real tough skin, you know. Uh, so so it, just because there's some stuff on the outside doesn't mean it's not good on the inside, right? So there, there are people that are, are that way, a little rough around the edges. But if you get to know them, they're awesome. All right. Then you have the apple. It's a pretty decent looking apple. Now most of us will pick it up. A, a trained apple purchaser or picker will examine the apple carefully. But occasionally, you probably had the experience, you go into the supermarket, you grab an apple, you throw it in the bag because it looks good, like on one side. You get home, you pull it out of the bag, you look on the other side, and what do you see? A hole. Well, it looked good on the outside, but it's rotting away on the inside. This is kind of what Jesus says about the Pharisees, right? Uh, you're whitewashed tombs. You're like a a dish that's uh, great on the outside, but it's filthy on the inside. Then you have this. This is an avocado, which I don't even know if it's a fruit or a vegetable. What is it? Anybody know? It's a fruit? I'm hearing mixed reviews. Would somebody with some authority, a farmer, do we have a farmer? It's a what? All right, the majority wins on fruit. So we got three kinds of fruit. I don't eat avocados, can you tell? Uh, I've never been able to understand how anyone who's changed a diaper can eat guacamole. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I can't do it. The avocado. <laughs> the avocado. So think about that one today when you're eating your lunch at on the border or whatever and you get the guac. Um, so you have this avocado. Now the interesting thing about avocados is uh, they kind of gradually, when they start going bad on the inside, they'll start working. You'll start seeing the symptoms on the outside. Like this one right now, it has little purplish dots on the outside and and, uh, and, and it's very, I can feel it in my hand, it, I, like right, just barely moving, it, it squishes. So this is not ready for prime time, right? Somebody at church gave me these uh, from her farm. And this, this, this avocado is left and was in the Spivey garage. I know it's a mess. So it's rotting away on the inside, works its way to the outside. All right. Okay, so here's what I think is going on. I think that the reason that this is so dangerous is because the evil one, when he's trying to do you in or he's trying to do the church in, he tries outside. If he can't get the outside, then he goes inside. I mean, how many times have you sat there and gone, you know what, we're handling a lot, our family's busy, it's, uh, we're hustling around, but everybody's fine, everybody's getting A's, everybody's doing this, and then you get sideswiped by something in the character of somebody, you lose somebody who's important to you and you're devastated personally. And, and that stuff inside your house, under your own roof, right? Well, that's about what's about to happen here, right? If you have people inside the church lying, 
cheating, stealing, not being honest with each other. That's going to rot the church away from the inside. And, and he just says, no, 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 no. We're not doing apples. We're not doing apples because he knows that really the church is ultimately an avocado. When it starts rotting away on the inside, it will soon start showing itself on the outside. The United States, when it has the mightiest army in the world and the opponents can't destroy it with arms, what do they do? They start dividing us from the inside, right? So that way of doing business is very old. So if he can't get the church, if he can't persecute the church into shutting up, then he will try to rot it from the inside. Ananias and Sapphira are a clear and present threat to the unity of the body. So, the same is true for any, any human life. We often will try to blame external circumstances for our mistakes and dysfunctions, etc., etc., but usually it's our internal sickness that does us in. The stuff that happens on the outside, then, it's a little bit like an avocado. It wouldn't take me very much pressure to get right to the middle of this guy. Right? So if I'm rotten on the inside, it's pretty easy. I can just squish it. I don't have the guts to do that in here, and I don't want a nasty green hand for the rest of my thing. But trust me, you can come up and play around with it if you want when it's over. Now, if I were going to make a list of my favorite scriptures, the story of Ananias and Sapphira would not be at the top of the list. In fact, you would have to go down to like number 478 or something like that for me to find it. But man, is it a crucial story if you're trying to talk about what it is that makes great churches and the, the, the lesson for you as an individual. Pay attention to what's going on in here. Because that's more important sometimes than what's going on out there. Now, we live in a world right now that's very big on the external stuff right now. Do this. We need to be out doing this and beating the pavement. And that's not, it's not unimportant. It's just not as important. In the eyes of the Scriptures, it starts with loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. That then allows you to love your neighbor as yourself and it helps you do acts of service for the right reasons, to do it in the right way, with the right aim. But if all you do is try to just make things happen, you're just turning the Rubik's Cube again. You're just making things, trying to make things happen on your own. The reason that I think money becomes the issue, I mean, Luke, you may remember, or, uh, Acts is volume two of the Gospel of Luke, all right? Same author, same audience, same everything. First part's the life of Jesus, that's the Gospel of Luke. Acts is the life of the church. And in the Gospel of Luke, there are all sorts of stories about money. Money's a very big deal in Luke. So you have these. You have the parable of the debtors in Luke 7, the good Samaritan, the rich fool, the unjust steward, the rich man in Lazarus, the parable of the talents. All of those are unique to the Gospel of Luke, except one of them. Wealth is something that's very dangerous, and the reason is that it rots us from the inside. And when it rots you from the inside and you're on the inside of the church, your rottenness starts to rot that of, of others around you. So, here's this word of caution to the church. Then there's what you might call the sin of almost. Uh, in the uh, since the 1940s, the Ad Council has been responsible for doing ads, uh, the big PSAs for the government. And when they do, they often... I, you know, Super Bowl ads or whatever, they're very poignant. They did a particular campaign. It was mostly in the 1980s. But it was called Don't Almost Give. So I'm going to do this uh, for you. I'm just going to read you the script of these. I could have showed you the video, but they were so grainy, I didn't think it would show up. But the campaign was called Don't Almost Give. All right. So one ad shows a man with crutches 
struggling up a flight of concrete stairs. The narrator says this, he goes, this is a man who almost learned to walk at a rehab center that almost got built by people who almost gave money. And then after a brief pause, they say, almost gave. How good is almost giving? About as good as almost walking. I know, knife twist, but very, very important. How about this one? It shows a homeless man curled up in a ball on a pile of rags. One ratty bed sheet shields him from the cold. The narrator says, this is Jack Thomas. Today, someone almost brought Jack something to eat. Someone almost brought him to a shelter. And someone else almost brought him a warm blanket. And after a brief pause, the narrator says, and Jack Thomas? Well, he almost made it through the night. Oh, man, come on, you're bringing me down, right? But the message is, don't almost give. Because when you don't, and I, I just thought to myself, I go, I don't want to be the kind of person who gets to heaven someday, and I hear a little, instead of hearing well done for my heavenly father, what I hear is, this is Tim. Tim almost was a decent pastor. <laughs> he was almost committed to God. He almost loved his family. You know, and what, what about his family? Well, they almost had a father. And almost this. I mean, isn't that just tragic? You think they were that close. They were that close to actually getting there. Oh, they were so close. Almost there. Right? I don't want to be almost. And so one of the messages of that story, when you read it next to the, the following story, is that Christians are not almost. They're all in. Okay? When you're a Christian and you become a Christian at your baptism, when you're standing in the Pacific Ocean freezing to death with me, okay, or whoever it is that's dunking you that day, what you're doing is you're putting your hand in the air and you're saying, I'm all in. And so when you do that, then you, for the rest of your life, you're going to have God standing there going, is that all of it? Have you given it all? Then Ananias and Sapphira's question comes up. Is that all of it? Is that really all of you? Did you really give me all of you? Right? Now, this is heavy. It can be depressing, but it also can save your life. Maybe your soul. If you read this text seriously. I don't want us to be a church that almost. They almost reached their city. They almost gave. They almost loved the down and out. They were almost bold. In, in witnessing to Jesus. They were almost committed. They almost loved each other. I mean, there are a few times that you might want to almost, though. I mean, you know, I almost hit the car in front of me or something. Uh, I almost sinned, but I didn't go through with it. I almost ordered the Brussels sprouts, but chose the nachos instead. You know, <laughs> they're good almost, but most of the time, it's a bad almost, right? Most of the time, almost isn't something that we aspire to become. One of the worst is almost Christian. Almost devoted, almost committed, almost great, almost compassionate, almost a Christian. Christians are all in, not almost. So, if you want to see what all in looks like, look at the next story. This is Acts chapter 5. 
Uh, I'm going to tell the story um, briefly to you. We're going to read some text together as well. In the aftermath of Ananias and Sapphira, the apostles go back to Solomon's colonnade. This is where they got busted for preaching the last time. Uh, Remember when the beggar came to them and said, hey, do you have any money? And he says, no, I don't, but I'll tell you what I do have. I'll give you your legs back. And the man gets up and he's walking and leaping and praising God. Okay, that happened at, at Solomon's colonnade too. So they're back at Solomon's colonnade. And the high priest and his officials find out that they're preaching the good news of Jesus again. And so the high priest and the officials, the text says, are filled with jealousy. They round them up and have them thrown into public jail. I, the fact that it says public jail this time makes it sound like maybe they thought the place they put them last time was too soft. And so they throw them in county now, so to speak. So they throw them in the bad jail, the big public jail. And then the call, it goes out to, for the high council to assemble. The knights of the round table, spiritually speaking. They come together. The next morning, they're ready for the trial. So they tell the jailer, hey, go get the apostles over there in the jail. It's time for them to stand trial. They go to the jail, and they're not there. Then somebody runs in and says, hey, we found them. They're back at Solomon's colonnade preaching about Jesus again. So then they go find them again. Okay, go get them and arrest them and get them back in here. Well, you can imagine what happens, right? The temple guard go. They arrest them without violence at the moment because they're afraid the people might stone them if they do because they're there doing great things and they're preaching good news. The high priest is not having it. He's displeased. Acts 5.28, he says, We gave you strict orders. It sounds like a bad principle, doesn't it? We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name. Instead, you filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. Acts 5, 29 to 32. Here's how Peter and the apostles reply. We must obey God rather than human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging on a cross. Then God put him in place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this. So the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey him. All right, well, now they're really upset. Because the triple dog dare, the double secret probation didn't work, throwing him in jail didn't work. They're upset. And you are the ones that killed him, he keeps saying. And we're here to testify that this one that you crucified died so that people would turn away from their sins. And it says in the text that they're furious. They're enraged to the point that they want to kill them. And just then, an old man by the name of Gamaliel, very well respected. Outside the Bible, there are all sorts of writings about this guy. That He was this noble guy that uh, was an expert in the law, very moderate in his temperament. And so I picture him kind of putting his finger in the air like this as, as if to say, hey, I got something to say. And the room hushes down. And he says, we need to be careful <laughs> what we do to them, he says. And he's saying, basically, if you, if you, if you kill them, you could have a riot on your hands. And he says in, in Acts 5, 38, 39, he says, my advice is leave them alone. Let them go. If they're planning on doing these things merely on their own, it'll be overthrown. He gives them a couple of examples from history to prove this out. He goes, every other, you know, these little Johnny-come-lately movements come through, and they, 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 they're here today and gone tomorrow. He goes, if, if they're just doing it on their own, then, then it'll be gone. It'll be gone. But if, if, if it's of God, this is good wisdom. 
If it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them anyway. You may even find yourself fighting against God. And so they take his advice, they bring the apostles back in, and they have them flogged, that is whipped. And they order them to strictly not speak any more about Jesus. So they had that strict warning again. That hasn't worked before, but now they think, hey, give them a good beating and then throw it in there. Maybe they'll, they'll uh, take our advice finally. Well, I don't want you to let that go by, the flogging piece. Usually, it doesn't say specifically that they would get the 39 lashes uh, in here, but the standard practice was, this goes back to the book of Deuteronomy, the order was 40, but they were so afraid of going over 40 that they, all, they usually stopped at 39, and they did it in a way so it would be divided by three, and they cooked the pancakes on both sides. They gave them two lashes on the back, and they'd flip them over and give them one on the chest. And they'd turn them back over, two on the back, one on the front. Two on the back, one on the front, until they got to 39 lashes. Paul, the apostle, will say later, he'll say, look, I happened to me five times. And he'll add, oh, yeah, and I was stoned to death and left for dead, and I was shipwrecked, and I had all this stuff. But I want you to notice something right here, right, that flogging piece. After 39 lashes for all of them, here's what they do. Acts 5, 41 and 42. The apostles left the high council rejoicing. Rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. Now listen. They went on their way rejoicing. They wouldn't be silenced. They went on their way rejoicing. Most of us, if we suffer some, especially for our Christianity, we pray for the removal of the trial and then, if not, we go disillusioned and we go, God, how could you let this happen to us? If you're really there, how could you let this happen to us? And people outside the church look at the church suffering and go, if there really was a God, why would there be so much suffering? This is the way that Jesus said it would be for people who preached the gospel. He says, you will suffer. No servant is greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. So why are you surprised? The apostles remember it. They hear the echoes of their Savior's voice in their head along with the whip. They hear them both. And they understand, ah, this means I'm actually one of His. Now I want you to compare. That's all in, man. Right? And then they get up. I'm guessing they're sore. And they go about preaching house to house. And it says they go back to the temple. Well, as soon as they're done, Gluttons for punishment, they go back to the temple. So that makes me ask myself a couple of questions. What would it take to get me to stop? What would it take for me to stop being uh, a proclaimer of the gospel? What, a little embarrassment? A, a little fear, a little this, a little that? Would it take physical abuse like that? Would it take... You know, we talked last week about a number of people all over the globe, you know. In North Korea, there's more than 50,000 Christians in prison or in work camps for being Christians. You know, so you got them, you got the apostles, and then you have, if you can rewind the, the tape, you have Ananias and Sapphira. Almost all in. You see the difference? And... And when it comes down to the gospel, what I think this chapter 
really teaches us is that Christians are all in, they're not almost. Almost becomes a threat to all in. All in doesn't mean that you're part of some kind of crazy human cult. It means that you're a follower of Jesus who says that I know the truth about my Lord and my Savior. I know the good news about where my soul's heading. I know that he wants this to be something that saves you, that impacts your life. I know that this is the greatest news that has ever been taught in the world. It's ever been shared. It's full of light, so brilliant, it'll blind you. It is so full of grace that you could say a thousand prayers and it couldn't touch it. It's just that powerful, and so I will not be silenced. It doesn't matter if you throw me in jail. It doesn't matter if you flog me. It doesn't matter if it hurts my, my bank account. It doesn't matter if it hurts my ego. It doesn't matter if it hurts my reputation. It doesn't matter if whatever. I will not be silent. I'm all in, right? As opposed to the guy that when, or gal, when they get to heaven goes, um, this is Bob. Bob almost was committed. Bob almost shared the good news with his neighbor. Bob almost loved others. Bob was almost a father to his kids, almost a decent husband, and almost fill in the blank, right? I don't want to be almost. I want to be all in. That's what Acts 5 is about. When you read those stories next to each other, Barnabas gives the whole field. Ananias and Sapphira, I'm going to lie and say I gave the whole field, but not. And then you have the apostles, you know, whipping, prison, all that stuff, rejoicing all the while. There's a, there's a flow. Awesome peak, Ananias and Sapphira. And then back again. Do you hear the birds over in the corner? What we talked about? Okay. They continue to preach every day. And I'll say this, too. The world that we're in needs a lot more all-in people and a lot less almost people. So God wants all of you and all of me. He doesn't, he doesn't want almost you or almost me because he gave all of himself to us. We're going to remember that now with the Lord's Supper. Um, those who are going to be passing the elements, go ahead and take your spot. And as you do, um, I'd like you to go back in time with me to that moment of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We take the bread and we take the cup every week. Uh, we do that as a way of remembering his body and blood. And I would ask that uh, as, we, as we take this, you know, if it's in your heart to do so, Say, so God, I'm in. I'm in. I'm all the way in. I'm not 80% in. I'm not 20% in. I'm not 30% in. If it's, you know, I realize that right now I'm halfway in. God, give me the strength to be all in. Uh, to live a life that makes a difference. So I'm not just an almost person. Um, and then hold in your hands the bread and the cup, the symbol of him going all in for you and me and all that the Lord our God will call. Let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. We worship you. We adore you. We thank you, Father, for what you've done for us in Jesus, the example you've set. We thank you for your word that encourages us, that gives us hope, um, that challenges us and tells us the truth in a world that has very few true sources of that. So, Father, now, 
We pray that your Holy Spirit would convict where he needs to. Uh, we pray, Father, that, uh, that grace would be upon us all as it was for them. And that we would be a, a community of truth-tellers. That we would say, God, this is me. We'd say it to our brothers and sisters. And then allow them to challenge us to move forward and to grow and to be better. Thank you, Father, for, uh, for the gift of the apostles and how faithful they were in continuing to preach and to witness and to do the right thing regardless of the cost. And we pray that we would be like them, Father, and we recognize that that spirit that was in them, that's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And so now, Lord, we remember him, our Lord and Savior Jesus, with bread and cup. It's in his name we pray. Amen.